Well, if you would, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. As Peter writes to the saints in Asia Minor, he writes for the purposes of encouragement, edification, and exhortation. To the best of our understanding, Peter writes around uh, AD 63. This is about one year before Nero's persecution of the Christians begins. Um, Nero burns Rome in AD 64 and subsequently blames it on the Christians. The result of that blame shift is that Nero, along with many throughout the Roman Empire of that time, begin to persecute Christians with a new ferocity. There are saints throughout Asia Minor, which was also under the hand of the Roman Empire at that time, who will need the encouragement and the exhortation that Peter has to give them in this letter. And we're not quite certain who planted the churches in Asia Minor, um, You may recall that Paul was attempting to go into Asia Minor in Acts chapter 16. Uh, He he wanted to go north, and the Holy Spirit stopped him. He wanted to go east, but the Holy Spirit stopped him, and then he had that Macedonian vision um, where he was taken over to Macedonia. Um, We have no uh, historical data that Peter ever went through this area. Uh, Perhaps it was those who were down at Pentecost during the time Uh, after Jesus rose from the grave that heard the gospel in their own language and maybe they went back and began making churches throughout Asia Minor. Regardless, Peter was made aware of their great need, their great need for an encouragement, their great need for exhortation, and he writes this letter to them. And to this date, um, we are only five verses into 1 Peter from when I first started 1 Peter with you, whenever I, uh, probably the beginning of this year, I think um, early this year, and then I preached again in June, I think it was the last couple times I preached from here, but um, let's read verses 1 through 9 again, and then briefly uh, talk about the encouragement that Peter's already provided uh, before diving into our text uh, before us this morning. So, 1 Peter 1, let's read verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, 
so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So just a bullet point, uh, what Peter's already told them. Uh, They were chosen aliens according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. They were caused to be born again to a living hope by the mercy of God, mercy of God the Father, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, They were provided an imperishable, undefiled, and reserved inheritance in heaven. And they were protected by the power of God through their faith for for the ultimate salvation that's yet to be revealed. So the salvation that these saints have, as we talked about the last time in June, uh, is substantive and substantial, right? This salvation is immense. And although these great theological truths are, and their blessings are already theirs, they are living in a real world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. The reality is that uh, this they're increasingly becoming more ostracized and they've begun receiving more contempt, more scorn, more persecution for their faith. They're being rejected and opposed and some Christians are even being martyred for their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, if you look over at chapter 2 and verse 12, you'll see here that Paul's admonition Uh, to them to keep their conduct excellent by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good works as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation they are being slandered as evildoers this is the state that these saints find themselves in as Peter writes to them So Peter doesn't whitewash the situation they're in. Instead, he talks candidly about their distress, about the various trials that they're going through, being tested by fire. And that's where we pick up this morning as Peter writes to them about the genuineness of their faith and the hope that they have for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter encourages them and commends them for the qualities of genuine faith that they hold. That will be what we talk about this morning, the qualities of genuine faith. And the first quality of genuine faith that we find in our text is that it rejoices greatly in the midst of trials. It rejoices greatly in the midst of trials. The saints to whom Peter's writing had a quality of faith that was able to greatly rejoice even though They're being grieved by various trials. Look at verse 6 with me again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while 
if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The one word translated as to here in our text as greatly rejoice is actually a compound word from two words meaning much and to leap. It means to exult, to leap for joy, or to show one's uh, joy by leaping and skipping, denoting uh, excessive or ecstatic joy and delight. So hence in the New Testament, to rejoice greatly or to exult. I thought for a brief moment to give you an illustration of that up here on stage. (laughs) I quickly dismissed that because I figured that would end up on YouTube somewhere and somebody making fun of my um, ecstatic joy leaping. This is the the image, though, that Peter's wanting you to get. Uh, You know what it looks like. You know, you've got children or grandchildren. uh, When you tell them something uh, that's exciting for them, they leap and jump up and down. They're so ecstatic about the, the news that they've just heard. This is the imagery that the, these words should provide when you think of rejoicing greatly. And what are they rejoicing greatly over? You've got to look at verse 5 in order to see that. These saints are rejoicing greatly in what is promised and protected and awaiting them. That is is the basis of their joy. That's the understanding that they have chosen to live with in the midst of their trials. They've considered it all joy, as James has said. And notice that this is not because of the various trials that they rejoice, but in spite of them. There's no indication by Peter that these saints are avoiding these various trials. But rather, the indication is that they are necessary. So what is meant by this phrase here, if necessary? Well, the phrase, if necessary, is used impersonally. It means what is necessary or proper. Uh, It speaks to that which is inevitable from the circumstances. Uh, it's, it speaks to what one finds themselves in um, or the nature of the occasion. So it has the meaning of being in accordance with what is right and proper and fitting. Because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are necessarily being grieved and distressed by various trials. They're afflicted to the point of distress or grief. And the trials they're going through are putting their faith to the test. We know that if the trial's from God, it's for the purposes of proving or testing the genuineness of of faith. But if the trial's from the devil, it's designed to cause the believer to, to stumble, to fall, and to fail. And here, they are receiving testing from God. It should not be surprising to them or surprising to us if we are slandered, defamed, rejected, persecuted because of our love for for Christ, our commitment to firmly stand upon his word. It shouldn't be surprising for us because we're not of this world, because Christ chose us out of this world. Jesus himself told us that this would occur right before they 
took his life. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. We've all had warning that these trials would come. Jesus also told them a few verses later in John 16, verses 2 through 4, listen to this, they will put you out of the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. This is right before Jesus Christ is going to the cross. And he's telling them, you are going to have trials that are going to come upon you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Count on it. One of the saddest parts of our Lord's words is that the primary persecution that the Lord received was from the most religious in that day. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when churches are so impacted by the culture that they believe something completely antithetical to the Bible. They begin oppressing, slandering, and persecuting you when you're standing upon the clear, unvarnished truth of God's word. Don't be surprised. We see it in small form now. But when the world doesn't agree with the church's stances on on homosexuality or gender um, or even biblical manhood and womanhood, what do they do? Uh, They go to uh, a church that's really not a church. They find a, a female lesbian pastor of a Unitarian Universalist church and they find out what they have to say as if this is biblical truth. And then they slander those who stand upon the truth of God's word. Don't be surprised when churches that don't appear as liberal as that and have credibility in the world's eyes begin to oppose the truth in similar fashion. The true church will be persecuted. It will be castigated because those fall churches don't know God and they don't know Jesus. But they will think that they're doing a service for God as they do it. Those saints to whom Peter's writing are receiving persecution from those who are aligned with a hostile government. Because these saints are trusting in and living for Jesus Christ, they're now being targeted as the enemy. So what should our response be, knowing that all of these types of trials have come upon this church and are going to come upon us? 
What should our response be? We greatly rejoice for the privilege of being persecuted for the name of Christ. We look forward to the sure and promised salvation that's been provided for us and promised to us. So we have our first quality of genuine faith, and that is that it rejoices greatly in the midst of trials. The second quality of genuine faith is that it retains its precious value when tested. It retains its precious value when tested. The saints to whom Peter's writing needed reminding that the outcome of their faith, the, the genuineness of their faith, is far more precious than anything that has earthly value. Even when the earthly value is considered pure, because even pure gold, the pure gold of this world, will perish. Please read verse 7 with me again. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The proof of your faith. That is the subject of this entire section of Scripture. Proof is the criteria or test by which anything is proven or tried. In the New Testament times, the word was used in regard to metals that were heated over and over again to remove any alloy or imperfection to make it pure. And here the words used to uh, modify or describe their faith, the genuineness of their faith is far more precious than the, va- the most valuable commodity on earth, even when it's of the purest value. Why? All earthly things are going to perish. They're part of the this world order, not the coming one. Faith goes beyond this temporal world. It is retained beyond this life and proceeds into life eternal. Look around you to see what is most valued and treasured by the world today. Is it not the things of this world, including gold that will all burn when tested by fire? True belief, true faith genuine faith will persist and continue in trusting God even when threatened by fire. Just ask Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when they went before Nebuchadnezzar. What did they do? What did they say? We're not careful to answer you about this. We know that God's going to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, one way or the other. But we are not going to do something that the Bible tells us not to do. That was the genuineness of their faith. They trusted in God's deliverance, whether from the fire or through the fire. They remained true to God. Genuine faith is more precious than gold because gold perishes. But like gold, genuine faith retains its value when refined and proven in the heat of a trial. There's an implication here that I don't want us to miss. The implication is that each of us will have our faith tested. 
And it's going to be tried in some way. Many of us may have impurity of faith that needs to be burned out, that needs to be removed through testing. That testing will refine our faith if we willingly receive it and trust in Christ through it. Others of us may have a robust faith that's made stronger still through the trial. I'm concerned that far too many of us miss the point of the trials that come into our life, and so we end up going through those trials over and over and over again until we realize and come to the point. And the, and the biggest point is to stop looking at our lives as though it is just about this world. This world's going to perish and everything in it. Please value that which is imperishable by living by and abiding by the infallible word of God. Pouring your life out through the gospel into the hearts and souls of your fellow man. Looking for that promised and protective salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. And let's be reminded by James that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. It says, let that perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So genuine faith rejoices greatly in the midst of trials and it retains its precious value when tested. But also notice the next quality of genuine faith is that it results in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. Notice the second part of verse 7. It says that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose praise and glory and honor will this result in? Look at your text. What's it say? Who's it, who, whose is it? Is it ours or is it Christ's praise, honor, and glory? Now, we so often talk about the praise, glory, and honor that will be given to the Lord that it may seem odd to us to use the same terms in regard to God giving these same things to believers. So let's talk about this briefly. Uh, will the Lord praise us? Will the Lord give us glory? Will the Lord honor us? Well, let's take each one of these terms on its own in, in regard to believers and discuss each one in order before coming back to our original question of whose praise, glory, and honor will this result in? Uh, will the Lord praise us? Well, if you look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we find the master praising his slave, saying, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And because of the worthless slave in this parable is cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, we understand that the Lord is the master who is praising his faithful slave. And we often use this term for our uh, faithful uh, dead loved ones uh, during, the, during funeral services. Uh, well done, good and faithful service. That's what servant, that's what we're all looking to hear. But we also find in uh, God giving praise to each one in Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 4, verse 5. Uh, he says this, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, 
But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts, and then each one's praise will come to him from God. Wait until the Lord comes. Each one's praise will come to him from God. What about giving glory? Will, will the Lord give us glory? Well, please be, be reminded of the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8 that says, whom he justified, he also glorified. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, he says this, Paul says to the Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Peter tells the folks he's writing to here in this, this very epistle in chapter 5 that when the chief shepherd appears, they will receive the unfading crown of glory. And as Jesus explained at the end of the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What about honor? Will the Lord honor us? I think you already know the answer by now. Um, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples in John 12, 24 through 26, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And here's the line, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the Bible clearly teaches that those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who trust in him and serve in him, will be given praise, glory, and honor from God. But let's go back to our original question. Whose praise and glory and honor will this result in? Is it ours or is it Christ's? Well, perhaps the, the best answer is both. Uh, Peter does not specify whether this is praise, glory, and honor uh, that people are giving to God or if this is praise, glory, and honor that God is giving to his faithful followers. However, we do know that when it occurs, it occurs at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason I believe and I lean towards the fact that that the genuineness of their faith that has been tested throughout their lives results in God praising, glorifying, and honoring them when Jesus Christ is revealed. And we can give God glory and praise and honor even now. So it's for that reason uh, that I also believe that you know, Peter qualifies his statement here in the middle of the verse, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory. So I believe if, if it was a reference to Jesus that he would say will be found uh, to result in praise, honor, and glory. So 
Um, for that, I, I believe it's, I am leaning towards the fact that he's talking about faithful believers who will receive praise, honor, and glory from Jesus Christ when he returns. Whichever the case may be, genuine faith that passes the test will result in praise, glory, and honor at, at the revelation of Christ. So genuine faith rejoices greatly in the midst of trials. It retains its precious value when tested and results in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But also notice the next quality of genuine faith is that it loves Christ without having seen him. It loves Christ without having seen him. Remember, these are believers who may have lived within Jesus' lifetime. And they were just separated from Jesus geographically. Or, at the most, they're one generation removed from him at this time that Peter's writing. Uh, please look with me at verse 8. Here's what it says. And though you have not seen him, you love him. The effects of Christ's ministry and the signs and wonders of the apostles are still um, fresh, very fresh. And the stories are still circulating throughout the entire region. The gospel's going forth into the whole world. And though they have not seen him, they love him. And why do they love him? Why do they love Jesus? Well, they love him for the same reason that you and I love him. As the Apostle John explains in 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now he says that in 1 John 4 verse 10, but in verse 19, just following that, he says this, we love because he first loved us. We know why these saints love Jesus. They have been redeemed from their sin. They have been gloriously saved and loved by God. And so they love him in return. Jesus died on their behalf to appease the wrath of God against them. That produces love. That's why we love him when we have not seen him. Peter's commending them for their love here. He's not commanding them to love him. This isn't an exhortation but an encouragement. All that they are enduring has not made them sullen or pessimistic. Uh, it's not caused them to grumble and complain, but rather to rejoice when they're distressed and grieved by these various trials. They counted a privilege to suffer for the Lord's sake and to love him even though they haven't seen him. Wrapped up in Peter's statement, is the context in which he says it. He's just spoken of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a great expectancy of his return. And there's great joy and delight in the hope provided that goes beyond this life. Though they've not seen him, they love him. May that be said of us. May that be said of Crossway Bible Church, that though we have not seen him, we love him. And we love it. Love is an action. All of 1 Corinthians 13, those are all verbs. They, we act, we love one another. By this men, all men will know 
that you are my disciples, Jesus says, when you have love one for another. We have not seen him, but we love him. The next quality of genuine faith is similar. It believes in Christ, though not seeing him now. It believes in Christ, though not seeing him now. Believing in Jesus is not contingent upon being able to see him. Please look at verse, with me at verse 8 again. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Placing your faith and trust in someone or something that you cannot see is considered to be a stronger faith than placing trust in what you see. Just ask Thomas, right? Uh, please turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Um, you know the story well, um, but just for context, um, this occurs eight days after the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He had appeared to all the disciples except for Thomas on the very evening of the first day in which he rose from the grave. If you're there in, in John chapter 20, please begin reading with me in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Bring your finger here and see my hands. And bring your hand here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Unlike Thomas... The saints that Peter's writing to did not have our Lord Jesus stand before them and allow them to see and feel his hands and put their hands in his side. Not only have the saints loved Jesus, even though they haven't seen him, unlike Peter, who had seen him, they have also believed in Jesus, even though they didn't see him at that moment. Their faith their trust was placed in Christ and made stronger through the trials that they were enduring. Our belief today is no different. We believe even though we do not see him now. Will our faith endure through the trials that come upon us? Will we trust in Jesus through those trials? I pray that we will and that we will continue to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, the next two qualities of genuine faith are the product of the, the previous qualities that we've already discussed, but are still qualities of genuine faith. Uh, the sixth quality of genuine faith here is seen at the end of verse 8. Uh, please read it again with me, if you would, verse 8. Uh, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
So with this quality of genuine faith, it greatly rejoices with inexpressible and glorious joy. It greatly rejoices with inexpressible and glorious joy. Uh, this is the same word used in verse 6 for great rejoicing, and it's used here again, to exult, to leap for joy. This joy, though, is so great that it is described here as unutterable. Unutterable joy. The believer is so filled with joy because Jesus is the object of their love. Jesus is the object of their trust. They are so full of him and from all that the Lord has accomplished on their behalf that they are left speechless with joy. Joy inexpressible. They cannot even come up with the words to express their joy. There are no words to be uttered that can do justice to the measure of joy that they have. This is the only place in, in, in the word of God that this word is used in the New Testament here. <clears throat> Describes a joy so profound that it is beyond the ability of words to convey. You know uh, this in regard to peace as well, right? The peace that passes all understanding. <clears throat> this is joy in the same way. But not only is this joy unable to be expressed with words, it's also full of glory. Meaning that it is a glorious joy, an ex excellent joy, a splendid joy, an exalted joy. <clears throat> what is clear is that their lives are not characterized by the difficulties and the trials that they are enduing, enduring. Their life is characterized by a, a confident trust and hope that fills their present reality so full that they are unable to express their joy because it is so glorious. It's a transcendent joy. This joy is a result of the truth that they know about Jesus Christ. This joy is a result of all that Jesus Christ has done for them. Do you have this kind of joy in your life? And the last quality of genuine faith we find in our passage this morning is that it obtains the goal of faith, the salvation of one's soul. It obtains the goal of faith, the salvation of one's soul. Please read verse 9 with me if you would. Receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The word for obtain means to acquire. And what is it that this verse is saying that's being acquired? The outcome of your faith. The Greek word for outcome is the word telos. You, you may have heard it or used it, uh, teleological. It's, it's the, the end of things. It, telos means end. Um, the completion of something in respect to time. And what is it that is the outcome or the goal 
or the end of faith. It's the salvation of our souls. It is the, uh, I believe it's speaking of the salvation in its, our salvation in its ultimate sense of fulfillment when Christ returns. It fits nicely with Peter's reference to salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only are we recipients of salvation currently as a result of our faith, but we are also said to be recipients of salvation when our faith has become sight at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.30 once again, those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's spoken of as past tense. It's already done. It's that sure. Both our justification and our glorification are spoken of as having been completed. We can be confident that we will obtain the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I believe Peter is using soul as a Hebrew would in reference to um, the whole man. If you'll recall when God breathed into Adam uh, the, the breath, uh, his soul, uh, it included his body. So our ultimate salvation is yet to come, and it's a grand truth. It should be looked forward to with great joy because of all that he's accomplished for us. What a joy to know that our ultimate salvation has already been obtained and already been, it's spoken of as already been completed through the faith that we've placed in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter wanted those who were being distressed by various trials to have great confidence in the genuineness of their faith. And he commends them, and he encourages them with all of the words in this this passage. Let me finish with a closing thought uh, from John MacArthur. He says this, There's really no reason for believers to lose their joy when they can tap into all the present and future spiritual realities mentioned in this passage. Present, proven faith, fellowship with Christ, and deliverance, and a protected future inheritance and promised honor. As Jesus assured the apostles, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Well, before we pray, I'm going to give you a moment just to bow your heads and to think through what you've heard today. Maybe you've not been focusing on the right things. Maybe you've not been considering all that Christ has done for you and all that he's provided for you. So take a moment and talk to the Lord about that before I pray for us. Oh, Father, 
we are so undeserving of your grace. We're so undeserving of your kindness. And it was your kindness that led us to repentance. And Father, you have done great things. You have provided for us a salvation that was hidden from those in the Old Testament. They did not understand all that you were preparing and all that you were doing. And yet, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ. You sent him as a baby to live a perfect and sinless life and to die on our behalf so that we might be reconciled with you. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the blessing that it is to have forgiveness of sin, to be reconciled with you. Thank you for the joy that it brings to our heart, knowing that we will be able to spend eternity with you. That as Paul spoke to the Ephesians, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, help us to focus on the right things. And even in the midst of trials and difficulties, and yes, Lord, there are trials and difficulties even in our midst this morning. May we cast ourselves upon your great love. And Father, even though we've not seen Christ, we love him. And even though we don't see him now, we believe in him. And we are so thankful that you have caused us to be born again to this living hope. Father, help us to endure the trials that are brought into our life. Father, help us to be bold with the gospel, knowing that we are going to be hated because they hated our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that we are going to be per persecuted because they persecuted him. Father, give us the strength and the boldness and the courage to stand up for truth in this dark world. Father, go with us. Grant us strength. Grant us wisdom as we interact with those around us. And may you be glorified in it all, we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ.